This episode is sponsored by Horizon Capital, an M&A and micro-private equity firm that acquires and grows SaaS companies. Horizon Capital only works with SaaS companies generating between 500K and 5 million in annual recurring revenue, where they help them unlock the true value of their business and scale to the next level. Whether you're ready to move on to your next startup or want to work with the right growth partner, Horizon's team will work with you to find the best structure possible. From M&A strategy to capital investments, SaaS is all they do. Simple as that. If you're a SaaS founder with less than $5 million in annual recurring revenue and are looking to sell your business, visit horizoncapital.com today and get a free valuation. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about building channel at Zendex from zero to a multi-million dollar ARR organization and a 1500 plus team. Today, we have our guest, Stuart Townsend, joining us. Stuart is the founder at Channel as a Service, which is a results-oriented consultancy service for startups and mature companies to enable them to increase revenue through the right growth channel via an indirect sales force. Stuart has spent 20 years working in channel roles and has specialized in accelerating revenue at global SaaS companies through the building and running of indirect sales programs since then. Having worked at large multinational corporations for over 15 years, then transitioned into two large startups who went through acquisitions and IPO, Stuart has the experience and knowledge to get things done with a small team environment, but also own global partnership relationships and drive that top down, which we'll talk about today. So welcome, Stuart. Super excited to have you on SaaS District today. Hey, thanks, Akil. Thanks for inviting me. I need, I need to take that recording because that was a great intro and I couldn't have, I couldn't have done any better. <laughs> no. I, have to, I, have to, I have to pay for that service. <laughs> I appreciate that. This one, this one's on me. You can pay for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, so can you, can you share your story? Uh, you know, at, at Zendesk, you built that team, you built that program from zero to multi-million dollars in revenue across Europe with, with Zendesk. Zendesk, you were the director of ch- channel development. I think that was back yeah. in 2013. Yeah, so um, when I joined Zendesk, it was around about 250 people. It was getting ready for IPO. Um, and it was in terms of SaaS, it was a large company, but obviously it had scale that it wanted to go to. And in direct sales, you hit a point where you're scaling, you know, you can add people and such. So I joined it's about 250 people and took over as director of channel development there uh, and built out a team across Europe that were responsible for uh, reseller relationships and SIs. And then we work with a team in the US around BPOs, call centers. Um, and at the time, it was, it, it was just crazy. Um, you know, Zendesk was growing at the rate of hundreds of people, just hundreds, um, at a time that the market was just really sort of getting to, used to the concept of a, a SaaS delivered customer service and it was an enterprise product. Um, so my role there was come in, build a team, build a program, start to drive revenue quickly and, and scale that organization, which doesn't need hundreds of headcount like direct sales does. It needs minimal headcount because you're relying on partners that have sales people to do that. So it was an exciting time. Um, 
definitely very tiring, um, but in a good way because the excitement behind it and what was happening was was amazing. And then that company, Zendesk, went through an IPO. And now, I think in 2020, it's over 2,500, 3,000 staff. The share price is going through the roof. It's just accelerating. Um, so I was glad. For me, I was there at the right time at the start, the foundation, um, when all the passion was there and it was all exciting. There was no no corporate rules to worry about. Just get stuff done and make it have, happen. Very nice. And I'm assuming the team, when you left, is still kind of growing and, and, and building out the channel that you started there? Yeah, yeah. So the channel program is pretty large now. There's technology partnership leaders, there's um, SI leaders, contact center leaders. It's it's a much larger team. When I was growing it, I was growing individuals across Europe to look after northern, southern, uh, northern, southern Europe. Um, Germany was a large territory for us. Um, Etc. So that team is building out, and I had a colleague in the US. Um, and at the time, Zendesk was experiment. We were when I joined, there was no program, there was no partnerships. So literally, I had to identify the route to market and build a strategy for Zendesk to go out to partners to understand where the revenue was going to come from, who would drive that revenue for us, who was a good fit or not, um, and then build out a team that could then take that across the different territories and max out and keep changing that strategy over time because you can't just stay in one one lane. You've got to be in multiple lanes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then in 2017, you uh, went and launched your own consulting C firm, Channel as a Service. Uh, what motivated you to start your own business at that point? What was the problem you were looking to solve in the market? Uh, the problem I was looking to solve was the reason I got hired at Zendesk, <laughs> or the problem okay. I had at Zendesk. And and this is no detriment to Zendesk. It's, it's just what happens in SaaS businesses is I was brought in grand title, you know, package, everything's exciting. You get there Monday morning at nine o'clock and you're ready to start and, you, and, you, and you're on it. And then somebody says, okay, what are you going to do? And you're like, well, I'm going to take this program you've got. I'm going to go with this track. And it's like, no, no, it's just all on you. You've got to sort everything out, build a program, generate revenue, work with marketing. You've got to do everything. Um, it's like, right, okay. So I didn't really realize that, but obviously that's what happens. So you spend three, six months of your first part of your career in that organization, meeting people, pulling things together, define a strategy, go and do activities. Um, but you're not generating revenue. And then in the Q3, Q4, you start to get partners onboarded. And when you're building a channel, you're behind direct in terms of timelines. So by the time you've done your first year, it looks like you've actually done nothing apart from mm. some meetings and some paperwork and maybe got some partners contracted and got them enabled and start to do sales. When when the board look at that or, you know, the, the senior leadership team at corporate go, oh, that channel stuff's not really working, is it? <laughs> We've hired somebody, we're paying him all this money mm. and he's doing stuff. Um, so I came up with this model of try before you hire, which is rather than bring an expensive headcount into a SaaS organization when you're trying to experiment and learn, hire somebody, bring somebody in, a consultant that can talk you through a strategy and see if channel is fit for you as a, as a, as a model. Um, get them to build out process, documentation, all that sort of thing. And then actually it can start to get to a point where you can generate some revenue, get things moving. And then that consultant, me or whoever it is, can step back, help you hire somebody. And then they come in and can then nurture it, but have got something tangible to run with that they can generate revenue against mm-hmm. and seem plausible. Um because otherwise it just feels really frustrating if you're coming into a zero start type entity. And the expectation in their eyes is that, like direct, you put a headcount in, 
it'll generate revenue in X amount of time and it'll work. It just doesn't happen that way. Uh, mm. So that that was the itch. That was the problem. It's like this this needs solving because it's for me. That's a poor reflection then on indirect sales because everybody thinks one, <laughs> it doesn't work, which it does. But you know, we get the comment it doesn't work, and two, it generates revenue, but it takes like two years, and and it's very complicated or it's painful, and they give it direct sales people. So, so the mm. main thing I was trying to to solve was that time to market, get that done, do the upfront, do the investment and the research, get it moving, and then if it works, good, bring somebody in, let them run with it, they own it, get on with it. Right. So you say that that approach of try before you hire, which is you know, results oriented. Uh, what is the time frame you see now when you're working with SaaS companies? How fast can you, you know, build out that program and maybe start seeing revenue or expect to see it? Yeah. So so program build out and strategy can be you know normally about three to six months, depending on the sort of time up front, the heavy lifting required um, around that, and getting some partners contracted. Revenue, like anything, is is whether you're a headcount or not. It's all dependent on that ecosystem. So some partners are quicker because they're looking for revenue to add, and you're a complementary product. So that could come in six months or nine months. If it's an enterprise type SaaS product, and you're going out into a I won't say an SI organization because most of the companies that we're talking to today are sort of would be more in that sweet spot of, of 50 people or 25 people and growing. And, and you don't want to go into SI land. It'll just drain you of life. Um, don't do too, that too early. Um, but once you go into Sorry, sort of you, a, Go into which land? Uh, into a system integrator, an Accenture or a Capgemini. Trying to yeah. go through those channels when you're small, um, Everybody wants to go there. They all want to be there, but it just hurts because you meetings after they've got more people that they can throw at you for meetings than anything <laughs> else. So, um, so it's hard. Um, but yeah, essentially, you know, it can be anywhere from six months to nine months where you can see revenue come, come against it. But again, you know, you can have that sat in the background and just start with a referral program and get revenue in three, three months. It depends what route you want to go. So you've got referral, which isn't like an introducer. A reseller is somebody that takes your product and sells it at a street price and then buys it off you at a discount or a technology partnership, which is an integration, which is, you know, company A partners with company B and you're both selling your product side by side because they work better as two rather than one. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all have different timelines around it. But you can Got experiment it. and test it. Makes makes sense. Um, so you spoke a little bit about the process. You know, there's quite a... Uh, few people in our audience who are also consultants, consultants themselves. Uh, maybe could you just share a little bit, what were some of your initial costs to get started on your end, uh, you know, building your firm from idea to launch, and then maybe a little bit, where do you spend and focus your marketing and, and growth efforts? Uh, so for me, initially, I suppose the costs were were time, really. Um, it was all, all in my head. Lots of documents all over the place and processes and things that I've done over the last 20 years. And it was actually just sitting down, stepping back from everything that was happening and going, right, I'll turn this into a sort of standard oper- operating procedure type framework, document it. And then what that then gave me is actually what do I, what can I provide as a service out there? What are the type of things, whether it's building a program and a strategy, running somebody else's program and maximizing revenue from it, training internally to sales teams and sort of putting packages together. So from a from a, a cost aspect to me, it was, it was essentially time. And that was a good couple of months before I decided to go out to the market and actually position myself as somebody that knew what he was talking about um, and get started. Um, and then 
thankfully, because I'm a little bit older and I've been around a bit, I've got a bit of a wide network. So, you know, reaching out to people that I know, their ex-customers, ex, not ex-friends, still friends, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, friends and things like that. And just saying, hey, I'm looking to do this. I want to go, go out to SaaS companies. Here's what I'm looking to do. And I got some introductions. So I I tend not to do sort of marketing direct as such. I'll produce blog content, I'll put pieces through and it'll be an impetus to do it for a couple of months and it'll slow um, around that. But it's mainly around word of mouth. Uh, basically, yeah. A knows B, B knows C, and they introduce me, and and that's how it goes. And um, I don't take on too many clients at too much time and such because I want to give the maximum to every client that I have. Mm, fair, fair enough. And then for the, those in our audience, can you just specify in more detail what exactly you know indirect sales channel is? I know you mentioned you know referral partners, affiliates, and then you know technology. But if you, can you go a little bit more detail there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So for those that don't know, and and you know, a lot of people don't, and it's the first question I'm asked is exactly that: is what is indirect sales? So it's just think of it this way: you go to the supermarket, no matter what country, and you go to that supermarket, and that produce has come from somebody else, so it has been sold to them, um, and that that produce has come from a, another party in the middle. So essentially that's a distribution channel. So that's one way of looking at it. Indirect sales in SaaS is, is that same thing. It's basically, it's a way of getting your products out to a marketplace that's through another company, uh, company Salesforce, or another person's network. Um, and in layman terms, a referral or an introducer is somebody that brings you a lead and says, hey, here's Bob, it's interested in buying your product go meet Bob. Um, you go and then close it through direct sales as normal and you pay that introducer a fee and you may pay it one time, you may pay it over 12 months, whatever it is. A reseller is somebody that's got a larger sales team that says, hey, I want to take your product. I sell into customer service. I'll go and take it out. I've got 10 salespeople. Whenever they're in clients, they can position your product as a customer service platform. Great. And they buy your product at $70 and sell it $100 per seat. And they can add services on and and that sort of thing. And they generally look after tier one support. And then you've got a a third strand technology partnerships, which is just where you're doing integrations with other companies. And they'll say, hey, I've got an integration working with Zendesk. um, And this is what it does. If you need a customer service platform, it's really great because it integrates well with our CRM system. Um, So it's a complementary sale. Normally, it's like an introducer or a kickback fee on there. So always Mm -hmm. think of it as a way of your SaaS product going out to a market through a third party. Um, You still own the products, you know, the um, legal entity of it being... Um, deployed and, and all that sort of thing, they they go and sell it. Yeah, yeah. So something like a HubSpot or like a Shopify, right? You got an e-commerce platform, yep. you put it on Shopify, you leverage their network and their audience, and you know you dr- get some of that traffic uh, right off the uh, bat. Yeah, yeah, and you give some yeah. margin away for the privilege. Now, what's your thoughts on white label uh, reseller sys processes there? Because I know. Um, you know, rather than selling it under your brand, you can sell it under your own brand. People buy like a license, white label it, and then, yeah. you know, resell it. Do you think that's a, it's an effective way as well? Um, again, it can because, you know, if you're working with a, if you're positioning a product that would do well in an agency, an agency would probably want to position that as a white label product. So Stuart's media agency goes, hey, I've got this great platform for social media sharing. It does all this stuff. You log into a portal. Actually, I've never built it in my life. I've bought it off 
Bob, uh, whatever, and white labeled it, and it's and it's perfect for some audiences. Again, depending on what position product you're positioning, how much control you want over the brand is is an entity that comes into play around that. I know, um, you know, some companies are very sort of wary of white labeling because suddenly, if if it's found that at the back end is Zendesk, in a sense, it's like, well, why why, why is it Zendesk? And it can be. Um, detrimental to their brand and the outbound sort of activity. So mm. there is a play there, just just depends on, um, on the product and where, where it's going to go. It makes sense. So you mentioned that SaaS companies, you know, teams of, you know, 50 plus and, you know, generally 1 million in ARR at the ideal stage of start investing in, in channel sales. Why is, do you think it's ineffective to start earlier than that? Like when you first start off and, you know, what can they expect, you know, better in terms of results at that stage of their startup versus you know, at the early stages? Yeah. Um, it's not so much ineffective when it goes below that. It's, it's more about the resources behind it and being able to deliver. Um, so when, when you're around about 10, 20 people, <clears throat> you know, you could have, say, a couple of direct salespeople and you hand them over a channel partner or set of partners, whether that's referral or whatever, they treat them like the direct sales. And what tends to happen is the um, the relationship just fails because they just think this partner is going to wake up and come to them and just give them leads. <laughs> Unfortunately, life doesn't work like that. Being a salesperson, it should do, but it doesn't. So the expectations are, are set incorrectly um, and they aren't resourcing there. So, so when you try to do it when you're a little bit smaller, um, it can have a detrimental effect to you. So you may have three partners, you bring them on board, it's great. You give them to uh, a direct salesperson to manage. They destroy that relationship because they just don't know how to manage it and they haven't got the time because they've got a quota. Um, and those partners could have introduced you into Vodafone or some large corporate. They're not going to now because the relationship's been destroyed. So not that it doesn't work, it's just having the result and the capability to keep it going on. It's like anything, um, it's a partnership. The word, you know, the word explains exactly what it is. To get the maximum out of it, it's got to go both ways. It's a marriage. Um, mm. If you just think you're going to sit there and, you know, to enable your partners is give them some access to one one piece of document for training and um, t- tell them to go out and pass everything over and such, just just doesn't work. So mm. it's 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 more that side than, than anything else. Once you get to fifty people, you've got resources, you're looking to grow really quickly, it's like, right. right, okay, put somebody allocated to this, whether it's a consultant coming in or a headcount internally. And is is there any other metrics or filters you like to see at, at a point where this channel becomes more effective? Let's say, is there an LTV value that you know SaaS company should consider this? Is there a certain market that it works better with, or any anything else you look at? Um, not not necessarily metrics as such. I think a lot of times with this, it comes down to buy-in and the mentality of the team. Um, mm. And that's no detriment. I don't mean that sort of in a negative sense. It's just from previous experiences and going to roles, if at sea level or at a higher level or board or whatever it may be, hasn't bought into this concept of selling to third parties. So you always have this question of, of lost control. Now you haven't lost control, it's your product. It's going through a, a contractual agreement, et cetera. Um, or why are we giving revenue away when we could do this ourselves? Well, if you could do it yourselves, you'd have a contract with Vodafone and, and XYZ by now, wouldn't you? So it's exactly. all these sort of aspects. So it's more... I push back and look at qualification around that rather than the metrics because the metrics could mask other other aspects um, around it. 
And, and again, it comes down to expectation play. If somebody's had a bad experience around dealing with an indirect channel, it's hard to get them back on board again and understand what the value is without spending a lot of time around it. Got, got it. And is there anything else on the back end that a SaaS company needs to, you know, build out and make sure they have um, so they can start leveraging this channel, you know, more effectively? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's essentially stuff or materials that they have already, um, but they don't think about. And I use the word enablement quite a bit. That's the key to a successful partnership. So think of it this way. You hire a direct salesperson, you stick them in the corner, you give them some training, they go out and start selling. You have to do the same with a channel partner. You can't just contractually sign an agreement and say, right, okay, Mr. Channel Partner, go and sell our product. You never think about it. You have to enable them, give them the training material um, around that. And that doesn't have to be a fancy training portal. It can just be some stuff in Google Drive. But you need to treat them as if they're part of your organization, as part of the headcount. So I'd say Mm. in terms of... um, you know, what they need is the ability to expose their internal processes and the trust to do that with the partnership that's under agreement to go out there and maximize it. Um, and then they'll have a sort of successful partnership. And literally, you know, I started out, I didn't have a partner portal, I didn't have a marketing budget. But what I did have was some really good people inside Zendesk that had all that that material. And I just went around and pulled things together and exposed it to a partner to to get them to drive forward. And what are they what are you typically providing them? So you give them some, you know, maybe some some training, some, you know, uh, material, like is, is this kind of just like design material, uh, you know, pricing yeah. packages, yeah. you know, all that all that kind of good stuff. So, yeah, so it's basically the toolkit you give a salesperson, you expose mm. that to a partner. So it's literally, it's the same materials um, that the partner can then co-brand, put their mm-hmm. logo on. Um, but it's just exactly the same materials. What I, I did in Zendesk and other companies is where I could was bring the partners into onboarding sessions that were happening. So if we were onboarding 10 salespeople, let's onboard a partner at the same time, bring them into Dublin, get the same training. We take out some of the um, more sensitive material, um, but it was just treat them the same. And that oh, that just works wonders because then they've got mates then. They know who the salespeople are for their territory. If they're in Israel and they come over and they meet the salesperson responsible for Israel and he gets it by sitting on his, I was going to say ass, sit on his bum. <laughs> and this this guy will then start going doing things and Israel is a relationship selling country. So, you know, he can then sit there and they can generate revenue for him. They're friends for life. They're done. Um, so it's those sort of things. And again, you don't have to be a big SaaS company to do that. You just got to expose them to material, make some introductions, and let mm. human sales um, components take its own course. It makes sense. And so just comparing those two options, right? You're a SaaS company. Uh, you know, you have the one option, which is direct sales, building out a sales team, right? You hire and build it out, and you want to scale your B2B SaaS company. Versus, you know, investing in this indirect sales channel. Uh, can you kind of just compare those? Why one is more effective than other? Where, where you see like, you know, the crossover break-even point of being, you know, uh, yeah. one better than the other? Yeah, of course. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So I love direct sales teams. Pod model, all of that works great. It's perfect. Um Indirect is complement to that. It can actually just be the only channel, but it doesn't have to be. But think of it as a mathematical model. So you've got an indirect salesperson, they've got a quota, they get to a certain percentile, 
And then you realize you need to expand that, that headcount. So it's like, we need to hire another person that'll take three to six months. We'll onboard them. Done. Um, you've got a channel manager. He's going to hire channel partners and get them on board and contract them. And that'll take a little bit of time longer than that process. But once you bring those partners on board, well, they've got one salesperson or 10 salespeople or 15 they can allocate to sell your product. Whereas in direct, you've gone into all that effort and hired one salesperson. So suddenly you've got a channel manager that can manage 10, 10 partners that may have 10 salespeople. So you've got 100 salespeople out there selling your product. So it's just, it's, for me, it's, it's the pure mathematics of volume scale if it's done correctly. Um, and direct is complementary because it's always, it's direct sales and, you know, it's a standard thing and it grows and it expands and it's great. Indirect is complementary to that and can work together. So like say with Israel sort of aspect, it's you've got a rep that's selling to Israel. That partner can be his feet on the street going to meet the customers, going talking to them, going going around that and actually driving them. So that's well, the way I was sort of position it. Well, also on top of that, you don't have to go out and manage those hundreds of people, sales rep that, you know, you have that one channel manager exactly. is. Yeah. And on top of that, you're not paying for their salaries, right? I don't think you're, you have to cover hundreds no. of people, sales team. Yeah. No, exactly. It's, it's, it's the whole mathematics of the model and how it works is those people are getting paid no matter what, are hungry to go and sell products to make their quota. And if you do it right, they're going to sell your product rather than somebody else's. Um, and they're out there and they're localized. And again, if you want to expand as a SaaS company and you're looking, you're based in the US and you're looking at Europe, you know, that try before you hire model again works the same because is Germany the right country? Okay, we're going to op open an office in Berlin. We'll get headcount. That's really expensive. Or do we get a partner, go and test it out and then find out our product doesn't sell in Germany, it doesn't fit right, but actually it sells really well in Italy and Spain and Southern Europe. So again, you can always use those sort of components as well. Mm. So I don't know if you, if you haven't answered this question, but I'll ask you anyways. Um, how do you deal with this issue? We've had this before where... Uh, you know, you have these reseller partners, they're selling on the streets and they start getting comfortable selling your product and they're getting good traction. And, you know, they have, even though you may have, you may have a non-compete clause, they might, you know, start seeing the results and they want to take it all and maybe build their own, you know, competing product or firm. How do you deal with that? Um, yeah, so channel, just channel governance. Uh, so mm. basically... Uh, yeah, so again, so I've, no, I've not come across it where they've wanted to go and build their own product. What they have built is complementary services around that. I think what you're talking about there is more of a, I suppose, an agency type model where an agency is, right, okay, we've got this social media management system from Hootsuite. That's mm -hmm. great. And we're reselling it. It's fine. But I'm only making 30 points margin on it. Why don't I make 100 and build it myself? Um, it's just business. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, th there is no answer. It's channel governance, mm. but also it's, it's just business. As long, if they're breaking your IP law, that's a different thing. Yeah. Um, but agencies are designed to do that. Whereas mm. I work in the world more of value-added resellers and distributors who take products from SaaS companies, whether it's a Google ecosystem or Microsoft or IBM, um, go out there and sell them you wrap services on top of that for delivery to make extra margin and then they'll bring in complementary services as well to attach to it so they get a, a 360 degree sort of solution for the client um, right. and the only things they do build are against the api of the SaaS company fair, fair enough cool yeah. um and, and then you know in building teams this could be either 
sales teams or indirect, you know, partners, I think more so with sales teams, you know, uh, you know, especially with 2020 now, a lot of teams are going remote. Um, you know, a challenge we've had always is, you know, managing sales team, especially remotely because they need that in-person feedback and, you know, motivation, <laughs> any tips or suggestions for how to effectively, you know, build them and manage them? Um, not, not so much tips and suggestions, I suppose, because I've always worked with or had teams that were remote. So mm. when it was at Sun, when it was at Oracle, you know, the teams that I was managing there were probably met once or twice a year sort of thing. So um, okay. I think with anything, it's just generally about empathy and salespeople are motivated by financial aspects and and being told they're doing really well. Um, but also it's about delivering negative messages to them in a more sort of positive sense. Because I think with what's happening now and some people are not used to this lack of interaction and this component and and it's hard to tell somebody look you're behind quota actually what's happening behind quota is it the market or is it you um sort of thing so i think again it's just i've always took a a, a, an aspect of leave people to deliver to quota and if they're on track that's great and come back and give results and fine if they're definitely left curve let's have a conversation about that and then let's monitor it but not in a micromanagement way and i think you've just got to understand in the position that we're in at the moment people are under different pressures with home life children i don't know yeah. anything so it's just about that empathy um but but one thing i've said in the past when i've asked questions around this is cut quick cut hard so if somebody's not hitting quote, quota. So go from SAP and Oracle type days, you know, if they're not hitting quota for quarter on quarter and there's no legitimate reason, i.e. they're just lazy, then just cut hard and cut quick. Don't, mm. don't hope for the best because you just, it's just not going to happen. And it, it sounds a bit horrible, but it's just, it's the only way because I, I look at it this way. This person must be unhappy mm. and they're coming to work and they're trying to do something and they're not a fit. So, mm go and find something that makes you happy and you fit and you make money against. And I'm going to do that by moving you on and helping you and guiding you through to that. That's the way I look at it. Makes sense. Yeah. Otherwise I hope just leads to disappointment, right? And then continuous yeah. frustration from all sides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so just kind of last step, just to wrap everything up and, and put it all into one, um, you know, uh, conversation. Can you walk us through what this typical process looks like, right? From planning to engagement and then, you know, building out the strategy and the, the deliverables you develop um, from, for, for example, at a B2B SaaS company you've worked with in the past or how, how would you go about it? Yeah, of course. So, um, pre sort of February and March, I'd have to go meet people. Um, I don't do that now. <laughs> um, but it's the same thing. It's, it's, out, it's around, can we work together as companies? So I'd have some initial me interviewing the client um, sounds a bit weird. I know that, but me interviewing the client to make sure expectations are set correctly. They've got the right framework in place and the right timelines and thinking and what indirect sales channel is. And that may go back and forward two or three times and with different individuals in the organization. Um, and then what I build from there is exactly what the deliverables are going to be, which could which essentially is going to be one is a strategy. Who are the partners going to go after? Let's build a matrix, a partner scoring matrix and understand which partners will fit and which won't. So that when we're talking to them, we can understand these are a good fit or they're not a good fit um, around it. And then it's just the processes around that and the training packages that all come together. So, um, you know, do you have direct salespeople? Do they understand what channel is? Have you got partners already or have you not got partners? And it's a lot of to and fro in 
feels like a bit of friction at first. And then it's more the heavy lifting of going, right, okay, I'll go and build all your internal processes now. I'll make sure your training materials are together. I'll start to reach out to partners. I'll cold call them. I'll start to do the research because even though we think Google may be a great fit for you, Google partners aren't a great fit. It's actually a Microsoft ecosystem we should be after. Um, mm. So I guide and steer all that and give them direction and then do that as well through weekly check-ins um, to, to state where we're at and internal interviews as well. So um, at the end of the sort of first part of that delivery, they get a review of the company, where it's at, where the organization sits and whether channel will fit or not and what that strategy is. And here's all the documentation behind it that, that comes with it. And then two two things happen after all this sort of engagement and process and partners they decide to keep me on and I just sort of run that program and, and maintain it from afar um, and work with partners until they're ready to hire headcount or I help them find somebody that'll sit and be either internally, externally, um, that'll sit and take over that role and de- develop it and go forward. Or, or the final outcome, which hasn't happened yet that I can think of, thankfully, no, <laughs> is channel, channel isn't right for you. Um, because there could be an instance where it's just not right in terms of what you're trying to sell or in the time that we've been working together, you've pivoted and doing something different. Um, mm. And I've worked across childcare sectors, oil and mining, uh, financial services, telecom. I've worked across most sectors now in sort of SaaS doing this consultancy type service. And there's always been a fit, but sometimes it's been the timeline for delivery is going to be longer than than expected. You know, especially in the sort of oil and gas mining yeah. type sector. It's it's not a short term partnership. It's going to be a longer term enterprise yeah. type negotiation. Yeah, yeah. They're the slowest to move in the market and the, yeah, there's a lot of people to they're very slow to adapt, but I think they're the last in to make any changes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In my previous life I was a petroleum engineer, so I understand that. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you've been in that world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's 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 definitely not the quickest. <laughs> no, no. And then are you involved in also like those negotiations and fees, or are those those are typically set by the the partner themselves, right? Uh no. So normally um I prepare a reseller contract, depending on the territory, whether it's US or UK, put a framework mm. together, I pass it to the SAS's um uh, legal team, whether that's a person, external, to verify it's all okay. And I would make suggestions about the margin. How typically I position it myself is, you've never been to market, you've got no partners, you want to give away as much as possible now that you think is sensible, and then claw it back in later down the line. And what that Mm. translates to is, give 30% away now, uh, look at what your cost of sale is, and look at all that, I'm sure it's going to be about 30% anyway, so give 30% away, do that for the lifetime. And then when you're a year one or year two, or you've got mature partners and you sort of, you know, you're really ramping, claw the program back, make it, you know, invitation only. It's 30% mm. or 20% for year one, 10% for year two, 5% for year three, and do a tiered, tiered approach. Because, yeah, when you first go out there, nobody knows you. You've got enticed partners with money. It's the only way. Exactly. You know, if, I, right. if I'm going to go out and do something, I, I want the revenue. Once you've got the revenue coming and it's recurring, you can accept the fact that at some stage you've got your cost to sell back over year one or 18 months, it's going to reduce downwards. Got it. <coughs> Excuse me. So you suggest that as a starting point, you're 30% recurring for the entire kind of sales cycle. It's yeah. probably a good starting yeah. point. Perfect. It's, awesome. it's a good starting point. Yeah. 
very, very helpful. Um, cool. What are, what are some of the biggest challenges you're facing today and, and looking to overcome with building your firm channels of service going into 2021? Oh, good question. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> I think the biggest challenge at the moment is um, not being able to go to events <laughs> and meet yeah, people. Sure. <laughs> and I know that's, it sounds a normal thing that everybody's going to say, but it is because trying to keep abreast of what's happening out there and not being able to sort of have that dialogue is is really frustrating. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And there's lots of SaaS companies out there. There's lots of SaaS companies doing some great stuff and have conversations. Um, but what I'm not getting access to is what's the movers and shakers, what's really going on. And you tend to find that by having a coffee and going talking to them. So that that's definitely a challenge um, that I'm looking to overcome personally. I think in terms of generally moving to 2021 um, sort of thing is that will start to change and things will start to open up again. And then I can look at channels of service and decide, is it a consultancy service I'm going to run and be hands-on and do what I'm doing at the moment? Or do I want to move it into more of a, I'll do part of that and then I'll offer a productized service or um, mm -hmm. online training or resources that are more volumized that can give those startups are at 10 or 20 people more access and more you know drive and do it themselves rather than me doing all the heavy lifting and being costly um let them test it for themselves so so that's what i'm looking at in 2021 to to do that um and that then as the events start to open up releases more time for me to actually go out and see what's what's happening in the world and what's going on yeah yeah fair enough and uh yeah it's always that balance right do you go productized service and you know more self-service or do you go more custom and and uh, you yeah. know, high high work, high high work, but high quality, more involvement. Um, and then I also think in terms of overcoming that that coffee and in person situation, I think you know starting. I think a lot of people started podcasts as well. I think that's also a helpful point. You get to meet people, ha actually have an hour conversation, and uh, yeah, kind of kind of the same thing if you were meeting for coffee, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. get yeah. to see some sunshine as well. Yeah, exactly. In, ra in random locations. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And nice backgrounds like you have as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. cool. Uh, cool. So who or what are three, you know, best resources or, or people or mentors or books that you've been, you'd say have been the most influential to, to your success? Um, oh, that's a really good question. I'm really bad at, at these sort of things. So yeah. in, in terms of, I suppose, people... I like to think, um, and again, I'll have to explain. So Sun Microsystems was a company that was around a while ago that probably a lot of people haven't heard of if they're quite young. Um, Sun Microsystems and Venture Solaris and Spark and got acquired by Oracle. The people that I work with there and the team there, for me, set me up for life in terms of understanding how an indirect channel works in a distribution model in a large 200,000 people company with lots of moving parts it gave me that sort of perspective of how to do things and how to solve things and process and framework and how important it was so i think that that was really influential um, i joined there as a late starter i was 30 when i joined there so i was quite old um when i was there i was running a program called startup essentials and i got to work with loads of startups um <clears throat> and the people that I met were like Nick Halstead, who set up DataSift, got um, a contract with Twitter to resell the Firehose. Um, Sam Sethi, he set up TechCrunch in the UK. Um, Simon Grice did some stuff with the uh, stupid 
hydron reactor thing that goes around sending atoms. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's just a great group of people, founders of Spotify, Last FM, you know, just those sort of people gave me, um, again, it's, it's not the resources, but the impetus to see that actually beyond corporate, there's loads of these startups and it's great. And there's this thing called SaaS and it's like a license to print money. It looks really easy. <laughs> That's quite good. So it gave me a perspective of where I worked in a more on-premise environment because it was Solaris, it was licenses and hardware. All those people gave me a viewpoint of there's this thing called SaaS and cloud. It's exciting. It's going to be dynamic and changing. So just before Oracle acquired us, I was just starting to head up the European cloud unit for some um, that was being run and so on, but that didn't happen. And and I think, you know, that those people in that time, 2008, 2010, was just really exciting and set the way now for ways where SaaS is acceptable. It's really great. Lawyers like it as well. They don't mind it. And literally, you can spin up a company now and not need a million dollars or anything like that. You can spin up a company at home and just use deployed services already and away you go. So um, it was exciting. And I think the final third component is... um, from a resource aspect is communities. So whether it's Slack or Circle, just being part of wider communities outside of what you enjoy. So I'm in some trends community, I'm in some channel communities. I'm in a community of nomadic entrepreneurs that meet up in Thailand every year, about a thousand of us. um, And we talk about weird stuff. Um, And for me, it just gives you a bit more breadth of, takes you out of your comfort zone, a bit more breadth of what's happening in the world. Um, I think they're, they're the, components I think that would say have shaped me and helped give me the right sort of perspective and how to do things. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Um, Stuart, what does success mean to you today, whether it's personally, financially, business, life? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I think for, for me, um, success is finishing my camper van, which I know is totally left field. <laughs> I've built building my <coughs> camper van for the last four years and it's nearly done. I've got about a month to go. So it's it's going to be my mobile office. Um, and and that is quite ironic, but it is quite quite something quite important to me. Yes. Um, but, but around that, in terms of success, uh, I suppose, is for channels of services, uh, having happy clients, delivering revenue for them and educating them indirect, about indirect sales. For me, it's about if, if there's one more person today that knows about indirect sales and the value of it and what it can bring to their company, I'm happy. That's success. That's mm. that's really important. Love it. And where, where are you planning to take that camper trip when you're done? Do you have a, a rope, a map uh, ready to go? Uh, it'll be Scotland, most definitely, because <laughs> it's nice and cold. So I'll go up there because I've got a log fire in there. Uh, and potentially go over to Europe. And I have been looking at the US as well, going down US because I can get it shipped over there. So there's a couple of couple of routes, but it's, it's a full mobile office. So you can go off grid for f- about three to four weeks. Very cool. That should be a, a fun trip. Awesome. So where can our audience get in touch with you and learn more about what you're working on? Um, yeah, so channelistheservice.com. Um, it'll be in the show notes. Um, that's the best place to go. Um, got blog posts on there. It's got how to contact me. And if anybody wants to have a call, just to understand about indirect sales, about channel, there's a little calendar link on there. They can set up a 15 to 30 minute I'll call it, it's a consultation call, but it's just, we'll just chat about stuff and I can just answer some of the questions that you may have that um, you either can't get answers to or you're frustrated about. So I'm more than happy for anybody to do that, reach out um, 
I do like to talk quite a lot, so I'm not, not worried about that. <laughs> okay, awesome. We'll put the, the links to our show notes for, for everybody to check out. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, Stuart. I appreciate you jumping on SAS District today. Hey, no problem. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Akil. You as well. Cheers. See you. Bye. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.